Good morning uh, on, on a beautiful uh, uh, sunny Oxford morning. I, I want to thank Michael and Mohammed Salah for their uh, very uh, 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 gracious and indeed generous uh, invitation, invitation to me and their hosting of this event. Uh, um, it is always nice to encounter uh, such generosity and dignity. Um, of course, I, I, I now am, am the man of the West. I've been given a very uh, specific charge by Mohammed Salah uh, to speak as a man of the West. And of course, I am the lone philologist, uh, uh, not only on this panel, but in the entire event. So I, 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 I indeed stand out as a sort of sore thumb, I imagine, uh, or at least uh, an odd man. So I'm, I'm going to present something that, that is not going to be uh, an account of uh, comparative or otherwise the mechanics of the revolution or an exploration of of, of causality, but I'm taking quite literally and seriously the charge that I was given under the rubric of this event, which is one of, of situating Tunisia in an international context and talking about uh, its symbolic significance. And, and here I'm going to be taking up something George said about the symbolic significance and also the question of, of the long process of a particular kind of, of a formation that I'll call individuation. Now the remarks I'm going to share then uh, uh, I want to situate in their context. They, they come from a, a, a long series of conversations that have been taking place uh, in the United States among uh, uh, leftists, uh, uh, principally, but not exclusively, uh, black radical leftists, who in encountering Tunisia are encountering a particular kind of conceptual challenge. And a conceptual challenge that's been speaking to a crisis in the left, generally, uh, in the States, uh, uh, um, and that's its inability to understand events like Tunisia, an inability that led to the failure of uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street, which expressly tried to emulate Tunisia, uh, expressly, deliberately, uh, in its efforts. And that failure has to do with concepts, and it has to do with the history of concepts. So, so that's going to be my approach to this question today. And, and in so doing, I, I, I should like to take full measure of the gravitas of my charge today, which again is to locate the Tunisian Revolution in its international dimension. And in so doing, I begin by pressing on, a bit on, two of the crucial terms of that charge, locate and international. Now, without appealing to the rather authoritative force of etymology, itself a mode of placement, and so begging the question, I'll merely point out that locating something is to place it within some set of boundaries and to so settle it, to situate it. How does one settle or situate revolution except to, as in the manner of the National Convention in 1795, having just repressed the last uprising of the revolutionary Parisian sans culotte and yielding power to the directory, stabilize it. Nor is it a trivial fact to our purposes here that chief among the institutions of stability was the comprehensive public education law enacted in October of that year, establishing the National Institute of Sciences and Arts, whose expressed mission was indeed to advise the directory about intellectual work, both scientific and literary, in France and abroad, which might have been of use in stabilizing the energies of the revolution. In other words, their management for the glory of the republic. This was perhaps most successfully realized in the work of the Institute's second class, the class for moral and political sciences, 
in which de Tracy's ideologues held considerable sway. A heuristic of some of the pitfalls involved in the actimization of revolution well worth attending to now. I think it's important for us to recall the conceptual basis for our methods and our thinking. Nonetheless, it warrants pointing out that in its voluminous work of memoirs, the Institute achieved a corpus of psychological social science, including theories of mind, as well as ethics, all focused on the well-tempered individual as the proper embodiment of revolutionary force. And that that project still contributes to our understanding of proper social order in change. And that is precisely why we cannot locate the Tunisian revolution per se. Even if we were to locate it in the seemingly straightforward geopolitical sense, which we've seen, I think, expertly done in today's panel, I should still dissent because it's not merely circumscribed within the ambient of the Arab world in any easy way. Again, as we've seen amply demonstrated in the discussions that went before me. And it remains porous, both northerly and southerly, in a way that severely troubles the distinguishing boundaries of Europe, Mediterranean, and Africa. So then, rather than locating the Tunisian revolution in its international dimension, I raise and will try to address the question of what and how it is meaningful as an earthly historic human event. The most succinct answer to this question is that the Tunisian Revolution, which we have seen unfolding in our day, whether it may succeed or miscarry, finds in the hearts of all spectators a wishful participation that borders closely on enthusiasm, the very expression of which is fraught with danger. This sympathy, therefore, can have no other cause than a moral predisposition in the human race. The last sentence sums up this revolution in a very clear way. It is evidence that humanity can progress of its own accord. That, I think, is the significance of the Tunisian Revolution of Dignity and all the details of its events beginning in Gafsa in 2008 or even earlier, up to the moment. And in that regard, it is far more analogous to the events that shook the Caribbean island of Saint-Domingue from 1791 to 1804, when the independent Republic of Haiti was established, than it is to those that transformed France, either from 1789 to 95, or even from 1848 to 71, which ushered in the hegemony of the European bourgeois liberal nation state. I know this seems like a radical proposition, and indeed a provocation. I do not, however, intend it as a scandalous remark, but rather as a serious proposition aimed at getting us to think something else, as Franz Fanon put it. It seems scandalous, or it's seeming scandalous, has to do with its incomprehensibleness, which in turn has to do with a failure of knowledge regarding those events of Haiti, that as the Haitian anthropologist Michel Rolf Dorian asserted in 1990, persist as unthinkable facts for which one has no adequate instruments to conceptualize. There's been, uh, uh, over the past 10 years, as a part of the crises of the left, an explosion in trying to think about Haiti, which we still can't do. And uh, uh, for the first time, an attentiveness to the thinking of Haitians 
on Haiti and their revolutionary theorization as a way of arriving at a different model for understanding revolution. So the true scandal is not in the proposition of analogy between the Haitian and Tunisian revolutions, but in this epistemological failure, which perpetuates the refusal to recognize that they are not derivative analogies of the French Revolution or the European Spring of Revolution, but are distinctive events of social transformation, which while in part stimulated by a certain set of enlightenment concepts and institutions, have taken a course that cannot be charted according to the dominant mapping of our common modernity. Um, Mohamed Salah and I were a bit of a background in, in Cairo in, 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 in December 2010. And then he went on to, uh, to Tunis. I wasn't able to follow. Some say that it's an interesting parallel that wherever he was, right afterwards, things fell apart. And we were having an argument. <laughs> we were having an argument that we've been having, my gosh, since 1992, since, um, when we first talked about El Yatim, right? And that is whether Tunisia would go or Cairo would go first. And I was convinced it was going to be Tunisia, precisely because of the history of individuation in the long process. And in that context, when things went, immediately I contacted Mohamed Salah and said, look, you know, my journal uh, boundary too, I've convinced them we need to in this moment record the emerging intelligence of the revolution and ask the Tunisians while they're doing it, what do you think you're doing? And, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, this led to a dossier called the Tunisia dossier. And the responses, which were in the moment, uh, were quite instructive and they inform this, this thinking that I'm trying to do now trying to engage what the Tunisians think they're doing and what it means for us thinking. So, so the issue here is indeed the force of symbolic significance or value. So what I'm proposing is that in order to address the significance of the Tunisian revolution, to seriously ask what this is as an earthly historic human event, we need another historiography of revolution, one that not only makes use of alternative archives, but also deploys an alternative anthropology. In addressing the question, what is this? We need ask, what does it look like? Hence my answer, Haiti. To the extent that this entails locating the Tunisian revolution within an international milieu, it means situating it in the lineage of, to put it bluntly, other than European popular revolution. This does not mean non-European, which would assume that the question of Europe itself is settled, which it is not remaining instead the principal conundrum of modern political science as well as human sciences. What are we and how can we see ourselves in common? The incomprehensibility of the commonality of the Haitian and Tunisian revolutions to the current political and sociological analyses is indicative of the utter failure of these sciences to adequately address that question. In the case of Haiti, this is expressed still as an outright hostility to the possibility of there ever being, let alone ever having been, a revolution. In the case of Tunisia, it is manifested as an equally assertive indifference. Both responses have a similar effect, the blockage of and destructive neglect of the revolutionary momentum. In, in June of 2011, I had the honor of being invited to the uh, Tamimi Foundation for a seminar on the, uh, the significance of the revolution on the structure of the human sciences 
in the region. And uh, I gave a long paper about uh, uh, Mirandola and uh, the issue of uh, the, the, the meaning of, of al-Qarama, of dignity, and, and made this, this point of, of analogy. And there was an American in the audience. I mean, it's a side story. Nobody thought I was an American. That was a great discussion about you know, how these, 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 these Americans were able to talk to the Iranians who were there. One of the so-called Americans was Australian, but sufficiently to say he was white and that mattered. So I began by marking, how come I'm not an American, right? Which led to a very specific notion of the Thawr Zinjia and Ma'am Zinjin. In any event, when this point was made about the analogy between Tunisia and Haiti, the American objected strongly. That was not a revolution. That was just a slave rebellion. I'm going to explain why, what, what that means in terms of the conceptualization of a certain kind of subjectivity and a certain kind of thinking. The Tunisians loved it. I think they also loved the fact that the Americans and Tunisia, the two Americans were arguing. <laughs> and and uh, uh, you know, I, I was giving my paper in Arabic and uh, uh, the American that I was arguing with had to listen to a Tunisian translating me uh, into French for him, which, which I got a, a great kick out of. And, and remarked when he said it wasn't revolution, I will not respond to my countrymen in the language of this country. Uh, uh, there is a connection between our conceptualizations and our structures of power. There are two specific points of analogy to which I wish to draw attention today. The first has to do with why it is both Haiti and Tunisia are incomprehensible as revolutions in their own right. The second has to do with incomprehensibleness notwithstanding, the Haitian and Tunisian revolutions function in common as a symbol or indeed an actual catalyst for worldwide transformations. Both are emblematic of the movement of les damnés of modernity to realize the better aspirations of humanist modernity, universal human dignity and rights. This has certainly been so for Haiti historically which has long been an emblem of radical revolutionary freedom among radicals, and not just black radicals, for nearly 200 years, despite, no, precisely because of the efforts of the great powers to erase it. Tunisia may perhaps, and this is the aspirational bit, come to the same status for us in our era. Taking up the first point, I'll remark what I'm sure many of you already noted, and here you must Bear with me as I go into some history of thought, which is that my proposition that the Tunisian Revolution is evidence that humanity can progress of its own accord is a paraphrasing of Immanuel Kant's assessment of the French Revolution given in his treatise on education, nonetheless, the conflict of the faculties. Kant's pronouncements of revolution have come under considerable scrutiny among political philosophers of late in accordance with a renewed investment in his conception of cosmopolitanism the reason having to do with the idea that we may indeed be approaching such a world order. Of course, Kant is notoriously counter-revolutionary, precisely because, as Louis Beck and even Chris uh, uh, Supernant have pointed out, his theory of the deontological foundations for the origin of civil society dictates an absolute prohibition on violent rebellion. Nonetheless, he did publicly express enthusiasm for the French Revolution, seeing the events of 1789 to 1798 when he wrote the conflict, a mode of thinking, we might best call it daring to correct him, an emergent intelligence, 
that demonstrates the character of the human race at large and all at once. That this should be, have emerged all at once, spontaneously among the populace without the benefit of that discipline achieved through cultured pedagogy, trending towards instituting a civil constitution is precisely what recommends it as evidence of human progress. It was evidence of the inherent universal human tendency of progressive change, where the movement is towards realizing a common association of life and living. The fact that even though Kant, even though for Kant, this is expressly a communicative association in reason, remembering, of course, Habermas, I merely want to mark it as useful, a useful insight, indeed, for understanding the eventfulness of Shevi's Qasida in the spontaneity, spontaneity of the Tunisians' popular uprisings, and they're manifesting a certain sort of sovereignty as self-conscious autopoesis. And that is precisely the unlawfulness of such collective imagination that inclined Kant to view the events unfolding in Saint-Domingue during the same period of those, as those in France as the purest instance of collective irrational emotion in the sense of ill-directed public commotion and unrest. Emité, hmm? riots, acting against moral reason. And so absolutely an illegitimate eruption of violence against not only government, but also civil society. By that same, sounds like familiar language, no? By that same token, I'll not rehearse Kant's account of the deontological foundations of the origins of civil society with its complicated elaborations of duties of right, virtue to the self, and justice to others, and his notion of authorized reciprocal coercion, which lay the foundation for his views on revolution. It suffices to remark here that his account turns on the postulate of, of that, that humankind is comprised of individuals who, even in the state of nature, are all rational autonomous beings. These two aspects of Kant's thinking are key reasons why all he could see happening in Saint-Domingue was a Negro slave rebellion. It is crucial we understand that this was not a failure of personal morals or some kind of irrational reaction to human difference. It was a fundamental function of his transcendental deduction, which is to say his account of what is our reality and how we have it, and so what it means to be a free human subject capable of enlightenment of warranting the motto, Sapereode. In his assessment of all that, the Negro is a type of hominid firmly situated in the natural domain of things, governed by physical law, but not so fully within the supernaturalist domain of persons governed by the rational moral law. And in that light, that enlightened light, the basis of the Haitian Revolution's incomprehensibleness has precisely to do with the priority of the individual in the tradition of European political philosophy. It is because the Negro cannot be admitted into the ranks of rational cosmopolitan individuals and so cannot be the generator of civil society that the prospect of a revolution forming a republic that is constituting a civil society is unfathomable and nearly unimaginable. My point here is, and it is a complicated one that I should try to make very quickly in two minutes, is that what's going on is not about race. Rather, it is that what in, is in Haiti's case expressed as a problem of race is indicative of a more fundamental problem of anthropological psychology and philosophy. 
That is the long enduring premise that only one mode of subjectivity drives the history of knowledge as well as history, and it has a definitive singular formation. Now, the Haitian Revolution contradicted this in a very specific way. And when Dessalines declared the autonomy of the Republic in 1804, he uttered these words to indicate it as an express contradiction. We have paid these true cannibals back in full. War for war, crime for crime, outrage for outrage. I have saved my country. I have avenged America. Now, with this proclamation, of course, he named the island Haiti, supposedly reviving the Arawak notion of the island, marking the place in which the European first emerges on the world stage, and in so doing declares expressly that this island is a republic for all of the oppressed of the Western Hemisphere and the world, and marks the war of Haiti as a world revolution to achieve the universality of human dignity. Now, to see how this problem uh, uh, of incomprehensible and contradiction relates to the Tunisian Revolution, and to underscore this point about the resemblance between the events that began in August 1791 in Bukeman and in Sidi Bouzid in December 2010, we need really only recall one thing, and I'll just point to it, and we can talk about it in the question and answer period, because I've got one minute left. And that is Badiou's remarks five days after Ben Ali left, in which he marked Tunisia as the scene of riots, les émoutés, and as a model for what now political analysts call the struggle between the street, or le midan, and autocrats, or governance by riot. And what, what's interesting in what he said that I can't read here is precisely how he was marking that Tunisia was fascinating because it showed that there was still pos the possibility of collective action emerging in spite of the premise of the end of history in which such things aren't supposed to happen. So Tunisia, like Haiti, was to be impossible. And Badiou recognized that one of the reasons for, for the presumption of possibility had to do with what he called the normalcy of the notion of the subject of neoliberalism, a certain subjectivity in which market forces define all of what we are. Fukuyama elaborated this, and of course, we still work on the assumption that it was true, a kind of arrogance on your part. So, <laughs> if, we it. <laughs> if we accept it, if you, if you accept it, yes. So what, what, what happens with Tunisia is the emergence of a different process of individuation. Right? He has a sense of this. And that's a long process that predates even the Bourguiba reforms of 1958. Even, I would argue, the Tenzimat reforms of Khairuddin. It's the process of modernity, and a modernity that articulates a process of sociality a formation that is parallel to, but distinct from that which gives us the dominant subjectivities of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Right? I mean, what I'm calling for is something we've lost sight of over the past 30 years. And that is the theorization of the emergence of what used to be called third worldism. We lost it with post-colonialism and understanding the history of this subjectivity, which one, one can argue the Tunisians know. People like Munji Rahwi, some of the people who will speak later on today, Muldi, mark this, that, that there is a long tradition of modernity here that needs to be reclaimed. And it's for that reason that the two revolutions resemble one another. And it's for that reason that, that Tunisia emerges as an emblem of the possibility of a certain kind of transformation that will, as Fanon says, 
do something new, right? To achieve what he called for a true epistemic rupture and abandonment of metaphysics. Thank you.